Hello and welcome to Core Truth, the podcast show, where we will discover the core truth that controls our experience of life. I'm your host, Mark Follett, and together with my friend, mentor, and author of the book, The Truth of Love and Fear, Rudy Eckhart, we will peel back the outer layers of consciousness in order to understand and realize the nature of our perceptions and the beliefs that control the experience of our lives. We will uncover the true nature of consciousness, what drives our personal actions, behavior, and feelings in life, and what really motivates mankind. So we welcome you to join us on a journey of self-discovery, self-realization, and self-awareness to give you a new insight into who you believe you are. Hello, this is Core Truth, where we discuss the philosophy of core belief therapy created by Rudy Eckhart. I'm your show host, Mark Follett, and today we're going to continue our discussion on communication in relationships. Hello, Rudy. How are you? Hi, Mark. I'm very well. I'm very well, and I hope everybody out there as well as I am right now. Yes, I want to talk about further about relationship communication because many of us, if not all of us, are in some sort of relationship, and uh, whether you're married or engaged or just in a relationship because it's just evolving, um, there's always some sort of discord or some issue that requires our communication to resolve. And this is where often many of the problems begin in a relationship and we lack the capacity to communicate or we don't even understand why we react and why we respond the way we do. So then our communication is in fact distorted because we don't understand our own motivation and we don't understand what's going on with the other person. Mm. So, so to some extent, the episode today is about how the breakdown in communication can have a negative effect on the relationship or how that um, a, a poor ability to communicate or misunderstandings from communication have a, a negative impact on the relationship. Is that is that kind of where we're going with this today? Well, it's, a, it's not so much that we'll have a negative or all miscommunication will have a negative <laughs> effect on a relationship, but it's more to understand why and how we communicate. Why we communicate the way we do, why it creates negative outcomes. Conflict. Can be conflict, uh, can be many, many things. Can It can be like a standoff. It can be uh, a continuation of an unresolved issue, which creates deep resentment but is never dealt with. Mm. Um so there's various states in which a dispute or conflict or disagreement can um, can remain part of a relationship as well. Might be the silent treatment. Yeah, well, that, <laughs> that's usually only temporary. There are some things that that remain suppressed or repressed and uh, continue to be a source of discontent or resentment, and at a low level then get played out as criticism and judgment and um, withdraw and disconnect. Yeah, the, the, we can talk about, we can't talk about communication without talking about the individuals doing the communication. Mm. So if I, think I we was... Did, we did touch on it a little bit last week and talk about um, how communication is basically an expression of yourself. So if you have negative beliefs, then... You express your negative beliefs. So we talked about Timmy and the way that he, because of what he believed about himself, the way he communicated with other people changed as a result or was as a result of his beliefs. 
So we, we sort of start with that basis, I suppose. This is where we, which is where the conversation is really at. What what is what is common and the sort of um, approach taken by most people that there is somehow a technique you can use in order to come to a conclusion. And you know, in some respects, there is some truth in that, but it's never a permanent resolution. So you may you may have an issue between two people and apply uh, question and answer techniques to the problem and then come to some conclusion, but it will only happen and it will only be effective, if it is effective, uh, for that one problem in that one situation. So there's no permanent or enduring solution to the problem. It's likely to rear its head again. Mm. Uh, it depends on the diligence of the communication strategy uh, and when people are emotional all strategy is you know is uh, neglected or dismissed and goes to the wind and then basically people just react emotionally mm. and once people react totally emotionally there is no mind so to speak emotions now are then talking which means there is often anger resentment fear guilt um blame accusations which become part of the dialogue now to go back to what i said earlier is that we can't talk about communication between two people without talking about the people themselves so if you're the kind of person who is fearful of being blamed and accused if you're the kind of individual who avoids being guilty at all costs then you will naturally gravitate towards blaming others or everything around you in order to avoid blame and guilt and therefore in any discussion you will automatically look to blame the other person and to find fault in them to find explanation for the disagreement that hangs between you two mm. these people are kind of like deflect blame or they it doesn't they try and uh, avoid being wrong in an argument um, by well, it, it, it's more it's, than being wrong it's, it's, being wrong is more about ego it's about I'm right you're wrong you, you, I, I want to prove show and demonstrate that I am um, knowledgeable aware conscious that I'm right in what I'm doing that I'm, I'm, I'm never it's not so much about blame as being wrong blame is more like they, they make another person responsible as not to look stupid, dumb, inadequate, hopeless, and useless, right, from a more intellectual knowledge and status perspective. A person with guilt is just fearful of being held responsible and accountable and then have to explain or have to own up to the fact that they were inadequate or that they were hopeless or incompetent in some way. And so... Um, they will, in a, in, a, in a discussion or an argument, uh, either passively, which means that they uh, avoid taking responsibility and uh, will say things, well, I can't help it, it's not my fault, uh, how can I do anything about that? Uh, I, I, I don't know why you're being so angry with me, I can't help it, it's not my fault, etc., etc. Or you can flip it the other way. They can become very aggressive 
and try and aggressively make the other party responsible and hold them accountable because you did this and you did that and you said this and you said that and you meant to hurt me and you meant to upset me and and sort of create blame to the other side in order not to be blamed themselves and absolve themselves from any responsibility where the argument exists at all. And so it is really essential in a way that if you want to have a sensible discussion to resolve an argument or to resolve a problem, is that you first of all look at yourself. And this is something we don't naturally do, <laughs> unfortunately. Because from our very early discussions and, and also from our very early life, right, um, we are taught um, surreptitiously by our parents that um, if they get upset with us, it is our fault. Mm -hmm. So if, if my parents get angry with me because of something I do and it is my fault, then their emotional state of mind must somehow be my responsibility. So who I am and what I am and what I do then becomes responsible for how the parent feels. So I learned from that, that I am not responsible for how I feel, that other people must be responsible for how I feel if they say something and do something that makes me feel a certain way. Yeah, one, one of our earlier podcasts was called Offendability. And I think it's a similar concept to what you're talking about is that you, you believe that you can make others feel a certain way um, and that others can make you feel a certain way. But uh, we, we, we debunked that in that episode and, and talked about the fact that um, it's actually the person who's getting offended who has, has the issues in that, in that scenario and not necessarily – there's no there's not necessarily a fault on one side of the person who has offended somebody else. So it's, sim it's a similar discussion, I think, in what we're just talking about now with the parent and the child situation. The the uh, the things we learn so early in life and we learn surreptitiously, we're not conscious of. Mm. So we then make assumptions without realizing that we're making assumptions. We we think that things are a certain way without actually ever checking the reality of it. And so we then fall into discussions or in argument with our partner without realizing that we're engaging in habitual behavior that we have learned with a habitual way of thinking and a learned way of interpreting that skews the whole discussion without realizing that we're doing that. And that then makes problems often unresolvable because we cannot believe that we could be somehow responsible for what we're feeling because it must be our partner doing it to us. Mm -hmm. And so therefore they have to change and they don't see any reason to change because they don't want to accept the responsibility because they don't want to feel guilty. So in the real sense, if you look at it from an objective point of view, both parties are always responsible. Mm -hmm. Both parties are responsible for an argument. Both parties are responsible for something being misunderstood or misinterpreted or um, um, if one party feels that the other party is responsible for fulfilling their need, right, then um, they feel they are rightful in blaming that party for not doing so. Mm. But when the other party doesn't want to feel responsible for fulfilling that need because they don't want to be blamed and accused and held accountable, then they'll 
hotly dispute that expectation and you have an argument that's unresolvable mm -hmm. because both parties, one is needy and unjustifiably expects somebody else to fulfill that need and the other party is fearful of being guilty and held accountable and therefore sees themselves as totally, want to paint themselves as totally innocent of anything, mm -hmm. right? Um, so both parties then engage in dialogue that's never going to be resolved because of the way their issues hold them in a place of, of, um, of uh, what do I call that, of uh, distortion, of um, misinterpretation, because they don't know themselves. It's almost like a stalemate between the two sets of, yeah. of uh, or between the way that the people are interacting because of their fears. And they're also looking at each other and hoping the other one is going to um, change or fulfill their need which is driven by fear, and they're both looking outward to the other to do something different. I'll, I'll, I'll give an example, and I, I spoke yeah, about absolutely. this to you earlier, mm -hmm. right, about this particular issue that can exist between two people. And it is one where the, the we, we'll pick the woman on this one, because of course it can also be the male, so I don't think it's only ever the woman, it's not. But where a woman feels that her meaning, purpose, and significance is tied up, in being needed by having others depend on her. So she subconsciously engages in behavioral practices and in relationship practices whereby she subconsciously makes others depend on her so that she is then responsible for doing everything and in that way finds meaning and purpose in her life and feels significant because others then have to appreciate her and acknowledge and validate her for what she does for them. Mm. Now, she will attract men, or if it was the other way around, attract women, but attract right? Attract a partner, yeah. But you attract a, that person will attract a partner, and in this case a male, who is actually, who has been taught in his life as a child that he is not capable of doing anything by himself by an overzealous and overprotective mother mm -hmm. and is not capable of taking care of himself, taking responsibility, of not um, uh, meeting expectations or being in charge and in control of himself. So he won't be able to do anything right. And, 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 and yeah. he's just as infinite, he has the capacity to be responsible for himself on all these different levels and deal with responsibility. So he then basically needs someone to be responsible for him for which then a partner who is uh, who has the need to be indispensable is the perfect partner for a man like him. Mm. Because in this case, in this scenario, she would want to do everything for him, control everything, lay his shirts out, iron his shirts, make sure everything was right, look after the kids, make sure everything was done. You know, at, at, at the at protect the... him from the demands of her children. Yeah, keep him safe from uh, responsibility. Might even be the breadwinner of the family as well. It can be as far as going as far as that. Yeah, it it is it is quite amazing to what extent these things can play out. And when they first meet, and they get to know each other, it feels like it's absolutely perfect because. Her issues dovetail perfectly into his. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, it might feel for them like it's a match made in heaven, right? Until they start living together and being together for a long time. 
because he knows no better than to depend on her for everything. Absolutely. Everything. And she knows no better but to be the provider and the problem solver and the accountable one to do everything for everything, for everyone, right? Yeah. Uh, she doesn't actually get the satisfaction of his appreciation because he takes it for granted that it should be that way. Mm -hmm. And when she then decides, you know what, I'm not going to do it this time, then he feels neglected and he feels um, rejected Would he feel by her. Resentful then towards her. For that will develop into resentment. Right, yeah. And she will not feel appreciated by him and acknowledged by him. So that's, that's why occasionally she will start, she will stop herself from doing things for him because she gets angry because she feels that she's sacrificing herself mm. without being appreciated, mm. right? And so that can result into conflict because he then thinks all of a sudden I'm being made responsible, I'm having to be accountable, I've got expectations placed on me, she now wants me to do this for the kids and that for the kids and… Or, or, for uh, my, or on my own shirts in the morning. Or yeah, whatever. or whatever it may be. <laughs> just even right? be responsible for himself. Um, right, yeah. Or maybe just responsible for… Providing for the family, yeah, right, yeah. and or being a bigger provider than what he is, because since he is the avoider of all responsibility, he chooses a job with very little or no responsibility. Mm. So his income will not be high, because if you look at work, then the greater the responsibility you take, usually proportionally your income rises. Mm. Yeah, that's why the head of a company with a large responsibility earns a lot more than the guy who is putting stamps on envelopes. Yeah. Right? So there's, there's probably a variation to that where, where the guy has someone that handles everything for him at work. He might be brilliant in a particular way, but basically someone but handles. That's, but, but that's generally unlikely. Yeah, yeah. Generally yeah. unlikely. Mm. Look, there are situations where where people have come into money and have learned to palm off responsibility by creating a lot of um, people that do the work for them. But it's it's not the norm. No, that wouldn't be quite. That no. wouldn't be common. Yeah. No, it's it's not the norm. The, the 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 main thing is that these people become gardeners or um, find jobs where the responsibility levels are very low and the expectation levels are very low because they don't cope with it. They might not be able to get a job and not play the PlayStation all day. Yeah. Some do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, the point of it is when when a situation like that becomes conflict which it will inevitably be in a, in a certain space of time uh, particularly when kids are part of the family and responsibility of the adults parents grows and expands and he's not willing to carry his share and it all falls on one of the partners then um, conflict is bound to arise but because each individual is talking from their perspective which is issue laden, right? Distorted by the issues that they have, then their argument is distorted by the issues they have. Mm. So he will find all sorts of reasons to justify the fact that he shouldn't have to be responsible and those expectations shouldn't be part of his life. And she will argue that she's already taking so much responsibility and um, that she's already accountable for so many things. Uh, neither of them actually have realized that 
that was the product of how they entered the relationship in the first place. That was almost their, their contract. <laughs> it was like an unspoken contract, mm. a, a, an invisible contract created between the two of them that they now want to get out of. Yeah. And so unless they become aware of that being the case, it is very difficult for them to find resolution without enormous compromise. So if you were like a counsellor looking at something like this, you would probably argue in sympathy of the woman's taking all the responsibility and say to the guy, you've got to take more responsibility, <laughs> right? And the woman will say, you see, she, he is, she's, she or he is right because you're not doing this and you're not doing that and you're avoiding this and you're not dealing with that. And he will just feel then that the expectations that are placed to him will be too much and too difficult. And it's probably will lead to separation. Mm. It's highly unlikely that the issues that he has will be resolved by placing more expectations on him when he doesn't even want to deal with them. Yeah, well, he so, can't deal with that, can he? I mean, from, from his upbringing, he just doesn't... From, from, he needs to resolve his fears around that mm. in order to be able to accept expectations and responsibility and demands. So, so I'm going to throw you an interesting question here then, because uh, so if, if he was to actually... Say, say he is a client of yours and he comes to see you and he starts working through these these issues that he has and he starts taking more responsibility. How, it, how, how, does, how, does the, how does the woman in this situation that we're playing out then react to the fact that he's not... He's actually being able to take some responsibility for himself? She, well, there's a tendency... You see... It sounds like a dream come true, but I think at some point... It doesn't quite work as well as one would expect mm. because often when he then takes more responsibility and wants to take charge of things, she feels that her power is taken away from her because the only way she's a powerful person in the world is by having everybody depend on her. Think, so she is then... Earlier. Sorry? I think you said earlier she gets a sense of self-worth. Self-worth and, yeah. So it's power for her. Yeah. yeah. It gives her a sense of power. It gives her, makes her a significant person. Mm. So he's then taking that away from her, and it's kind of a, a conflict. So often what happens then is then, if he's going to do it, he's got to do it her way. So she will still want to exercise a certain amount of control over the whole thing in order to maintain that power. So she obviously also needs to do some work on herself to realize that her significance and worth cannot come from other people depending on her. Mm. Because in doing so, and she doesn't realize the damage she's doing, because if she has children, she will do the same to them. She will want them to depend on her in order for her to feel as significant as a mother, as an individual, as a consciousness, in respect to herself, right? But in the process of doing so, she disempowers her children. And she actually, if he's a male, she will turn him into a husband, Mm-hmm. And if he is, if she's a girl, then she may well turn her into herself. Yeah, be, be, be very much like her. Or, or not, or be a person that also cannot cope with expectations and responsibility, mm-hmm. who will then look for a husband who will um, be in control of her and take charge of her mm-hmm. and make decisions for her and carry all the weight for her. I think you've said to me before, and I don't know whether it's been on the podcast, that quite often in your experience, if you had, say, two children, there'd be one of each would generally be the product of, a, of that relationship. There'd be one that 
ends up being over-responsible and one that takes no responsibility. Would that, be. That, that's usually the case, and it can vary depending on the sexuality. Uh, it's more interesting when you get four or five children and you realize <laughs> that they all have a, an individual response to the same parents, mm. which, which um, some will be in their behavior more like the father or more like the mother or somewhere in between. Mm. Um, it is just the child ad- trying to adopt or adapt, if you like, to uh, a situation which is set up by the parents in order to survive that emotionally. Unfortunately, they take that process of surviving their parents as being the truth of who they are and then take it into life as adults and then live their life that way. Um, but, but at the core of it, the issues are often very, very similar. Mm. But the expression of the issues can be very, very different. Mm. And so uh, that's also driven by the fact that each individual child is an individual consciousness and has their own unique and different qualities. So it, it is, uh, what you're saying is true, is not just a matter of opposites, it's complicated. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah I was just kind of making the point, you, you're probably going to have a mixture of... A mixture of, yeah. ...of, of responses to yeah. that family background, right? Some will be passive, one will be aggressive, one will be passive-aggressive, the other will be passive. Um, some will be passive and with, withdrawn, some will be passive and self-blaming, some will be self-blaming and aggressive. So there's a whole number of possibilities that um, that can come out of a family. But you see, also in bigger families, the, the bigger the family becomes, there's also an automatic, I wouldn't say it, it's, it's, it's automatic sounds a bit, that it is inevitable, but in most situations it is inevitable that the distance between parent and child grows because of the fact that each child gets less and less attention because there's too many of them. Yeah, so you're saying the first child gets more attention than and then the, the, then the, the second gets child. less. And then the, by the time you get to the fifth child, there's so many children to take care of that the first child be, can become a substitute parent if it's a, often the daughter to the other children because the mother delegates her to start taking care of siblings and. Mm-hmm playing a mother role for, 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 um, on behalf of the mother, if you like, uh, to take care of her siblings, which is also very common. Yeah, so in that case, that, that um, oldest child would be the one that's, that's over-responsible, that's needy. Or being, over-responsible, being often control. feels trapped in responsibility, mm-hmm. can develop the notion that she needs to be indispensable to have meaning and purpose and significance in her life, yeah. but also loses her childhood and loses playfulness, um, often doesn't have any personal passions and desires or hobbies or attractions and fascinations, as I call it, and becomes just a very responsible person and needs people to depend and lean on her to to feel special and significant, often make great workers because they load themselves up <laughs> constantly more with responsibility. It's got to be exhausting. Uh, and they are. <laughs> and they often burn out. And yeah. they often... Uh, but, but whoever employs them gets more than what they pay for mm, mm. Uh, because of the fact that they're so super diligent 
and super committed, but particularly if they're on top of that perfectionists. You know, you add all these things up yeah. and you get a person who worked their ass off until they're burned out mm. and then you have nothing uh, as far as an employer is concerned. Uh, whilst in the beginning you think, you uh, this is the most amazing person I could have had, I'm getting 50% more out of her than I do out of everybody else because yeah. she's prepared to stay two hours behind and get the job done but, I mean, and do it perfectly, you know? Going back to the relationship, she's in a relationship with a man who doesn't take responsibility if she actually physically breaks down as a result of being completely overworked and overstressed, he's then got to try and pick up the pieces of a, but he can't, of a family and he hasn't got that capability. No, because that would be a massive responsibility. Look after her plus the yeah. kids plus run the house. Yeah. You know, I can just imagine. So if she breaks down, he will too. Mm. Mm-hmm. Most of the time he can't cope. Mm. And he feels, you know, what, what then often happens is that the man taking charge of the house, other family members jump in and um, take that responsibility. Mm. Mm. Um, It's quite interesting, actually. Um, So conflict, dialogue um, in relationships. I I can sit here and talk about what you should say and how you should behave and what should be your dialogue in a whole number of situations but you're never going to do it when the emotional crisis arises because you will be emotionally reacting and to I, your issues and problems, fears and insecurities. And I think the rest of the time, if you were doing it strategically, it would be exhausting as well. You'd, well you'd constantly it w- and it re- wouldn't be real. You'd just be constantly changing the way. Like you'd think something and you think, no, I have to say it a different way before because that might be misconstrued so then you'd be constantly second guessing yourself and thinking about what you should say what you shouldn't say and but then you can't deal with the response <laughs> yeah. because because if you have a strategic way of talking your strategy requires you to have a, a response and if the if the, if if you have a strategic way of holding someone responsible and they refuse that responsibility then uh, it's obvious that they are to blame right you don't see that you have a part to play in this mm-hmm. because you are strategically saying or asking or um, approaching it in the right way, inverted commas. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So, so strategies are very limited and are not as powerful as people like to think they are because they don't have the capacity uh, to be versatile in all situations. Mm-hmm. But an individual who changes who they are and develop the capacity to deal with life because they trust in themselves, they believe in themselves, they trust their thinking, their creativity, the process of their intellect, which means their reasoning, their um, conclusions, ideas and beliefs and their understanding of things, their perception of things. They can deal with a variety of situations and come to a positive result. Right, but that comes only with clarity mm. and the absence of fear. Mm. Now, as long as you have issues and problems, right, and you have conflict in a relationship, the outcome will always be a distorted one unless you deal with your fears and insecurities. I'd like to tell you it was easier than that, but I can't. <laughs> I actually can't tell you it's easier than that because it isn't. I think our listeners will have the evidence of that from their relationships, from their interactions with people. They'll understand that there are patterns in the way that they deal with people in the workplace, in the home, or in in relationships. If they've been in two or three significant relationships, they will notice there's patterns that are, that emerge that are repeating that that no amount of 
strategy is actually helping with. I think now, well, well, you see, it's interesting you should put it that way, and it's a good point to make um, because when people do see a pattern in their choices and their behavior, right, they want to consciously change that, right? And with relationships, that's very interesting because we just a moment ago we talked about how people come out of the same family with different behaviors, mm -hmm. right? And externally look like different people, but deep down have very, very similar issues. So what happens then is when somebody, for instance, um, um, when, when, when somebody finds a partner of a particular kind, which is a... Um, which is compatible with their issues, so complements it. Will we right? stick with this couple that we've been following? This, yeah, this, we, we, this woman. I'll, I'll try and do that. Uh, and so she she realizes that um, that he's not going to be responsible, like before they get married. And she thinks, you know what? I'm going to dump him. I'm going to find somebody who will be responsible. Right? So then she finds somebody who looks outwardly responsible, right? Who talks and acts, right? Initially, when she meets him, I'm as a go getter, ambitious person, right? He may not necessarily in practice be that individual. So it can be one of two things either she meets somebody who is just like her, which then in within the short space of time, they won't like each other, right? Because you can't have two control freaks in the one relationship <laughs> because she wants to control everything to be responsible and he wants to do the same, so that's not going to work. So she's got to find somebody who, um, who she can control and at the same time, um, or control, or somebody who has a certain amount of dependence on her, but at the same time, um, on the outside, will appear to be somebody who's independent and self-sufficient. Mm. Okay, so, so, so if the so I think if I understand it correctly, if, if you, in the initial scenario she really left him because. He the first guy she left, she first, left because he was dependent on her too well, much. Well, say, say, let's say financially dependent. He just basically laid at home and, and played the PlayStation all day and she's just like, well, you're never going to go out and get a job. I'm leaving you, right? Yeah. And then she goes and finds someone else who actually does have a has, has a good job but doesn't really take any responsibility. His job, he earns good money and she's like, okay, that's, that's the guy that I want because he's actually got a good job and he, he actually gets off the couch and but he's probably got the same issues as the other. Well, he, he probably... Uh, doesn't take any emotional responsibility. Yeah. Um, he's always too busy. He will justify himself by being totally tied up in his job. He will justify it because he, he's capable of taking responsibility in his job because he delegates it. And often by doing so doesn't have to, because then the person he delegates to is then responsible for the outcome. So he actually, in his mind, he's never responsible for anything. Mm -hmm. If that person doesn't live up to expectations, just replaces them. Or he blames them for it being... Well, he blames them, then replaces yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, so so he's, he, he's, in a sense, never accountable. That's how he plays it out in his mind. And when he's home, he takes no emotional responsibility. And so he leaves everything to her. Mm -hmm. 
So the kids get upset, she's got to fix it. If the kids have a problem, he's got to fix it. Uh, she's got to fix it. He just puts money on the table. And that may initially seem to her like it is a solution, mm. but ultimately she'll be dissatisfied with the fact that all the emotional responsibility is still hers. Mm. So it, it never finds true resolution unless you look at yourself. Like if she was to deal with her stuff and stop being that person, who needs to find significance by being dependent on, relied on by others so that she can have a role in life and expands her her um, her meaning in life, if you like, on a personal level in a much broader sense that, that doesn't include others depending on her, mm. but includes things she can do for herself and achieve for herself, which represent her passions, desires, or you know, intellectual pursuits or art pursuits or mm. um, social pursuits even, um, then she would not be attracted to a guy that needs her and she would choose a different sort of man. Mm. It would be the same for him. He would look for a woman to look after him. He would look for a woman of equal value. I mean, ideally, two people are both powerful people and don't need the other to be weak. But they may be powerful in different ways. Mm. Like, we make too much about the sexual difference between man and a woman. I was going to bring that up, actually, just the, the fact that when we, we're using these two people as an example, but as you said earlier, you could swap them over, and, and, and this scenario could be completely opposite in yeah. terms of sexes, or it could be a same-sex couple. It, it really doesn't matter. We're just using an example. Yeah, because we're talking about an emotional difference, not about a sexual difference. Yeah, we're talking about two people that have grown up in two families that have issues and problems that match, regardless of whether they're two men, a man, a woman, a woman, a man. It, yeah, exactly. Really, yeah. Yeah, because we make far too much about sexuality, far too much, because it doesn't really define us. No. Which we, we, we think it is a definition of who we are, when we have issues with it, when we have problems with it, when, when we need to prove that we are a man or we need to prove that we're a sexually desirable woman or when we need to prove that we're a victim because we're gay or um, that we're so different that nobody wants us because we have a different sexuality. It all lives inside your head, I promise you, and nowhere else. The moment that you stop thinking that because you're sexually different, that you are so unique and different that you are not acceptable to anyone, right? And that you will be pointed at and made fun of and ridiculed. Once you stop thinking that way, then you won't be. You won't be ridiculed. You, you won't be ridiculed. You won't be differentiated. If you start, start acting normal from within yourself, I mean normal being, I am acceptable, I love myself. Just being who you want to be. Being who you are, not who you who want to be, who you are, who you, are mm -hmm. who you were authentically meant to be as mm -hmm. an individual. Mm -hmm. Once you start believing and trusting in yourself, so will everybody else, regardless of your sexuality. Yes. It does not matter. Yep. It, is, it, is, it is of no import at all. Yeah. Whether you're gay, straight, or anything in between. Well, it's important it doesn't in, in chauvinism where men believe they're better than women or women believe men are better than them. Or, you know, it, it plays into all that. It uh, plays it, yeah, into many, a, many different things. It's probably a podcast on its, on its own, that one. Well, yeah, the, the, you know, <laughs> sexuality is a whole different deal. But, but we need to bring it into this because it's a strong part of relationships. Yeah, of course. You know, uh, often... 
I've seen couples who, uh, or, or where the man and the woman both have a need to prove that they're sexually desirable, significant, right? And they, um, so let me, let me try and explain it. So the situation is often this way, right? Um, it can be the other way around again. So don't let me be the one that um, says it's all one way, but it's commonly it's this way. A girl is very insecure. She has insecurities about her desirability, attractiveness, about her own beauty, about um, her sexual, physical desirability, about her appearance. Uh, it's all fairly superficial. Mm -hmm. And it's in relation to men. So all everything she feels is in respect to men, uh, which points to, without me going any deeper into that, issues with her father and m her mother having issues with herself. So it's With respect both. to men. In respect to herself and men. Yeah. Yeah? So she's, she's this kind of person. So she doesn't believe that she's lovable, desirable, wanted, acceptable, significant, and special to men. All right? So... When men approach her, her inner assumption makes her disbelieve them, distrust them. Right? She expects to be rejected. She expects to be ignored, dismissed by men like she was as a child by her father. Mm. So the kind of man that will feature in her life will be someone that can convince her that she's really special, that she's really attractive, and that she's really desirable. Now, he will come from a family where there is an insecure mother who has issues about her own sexuality and her attractiveness and desirability and needs constant reassurance from her husband and now from her son. So, Often, so the son has learned how to do that and therefore... So the, the mother's need teaches the son how to behave. Mm -hmm. And then the son comes out of that family believing that this is how women are. And so he becomes what I call a convincer. Right? He's the one that has the mouth. He has the one that has the convincing lines. He has the one that has the convincing behavior to make women believe that he wants them and loves them. But he has a need within himself to prove, because of his mother, that he's lovable, acceptable, and desirable to women. So the convincer meets the insecure girl. And he doesn't give up on her. He makes her feel as if he is the center of she... No, sorry. Him, he makes her feel as if she is the center of his attention that she is the only one he wants, that she is the only one he wants to be with, that he cannot live without her. He will message her, he will text her, he will be on the phone to her, he will know, he'll be so interested in her, he wants to know who she's with, who she's talking to, what she has spoken about, who her friends are, what she does when she goes out, what she thinks and feels. So he shows all this interest which he's never had before. And all of a sudden, she thinks, I'm special to him. I'm desirable to him. I'm attractive with him. Right? Until 
she begins to realize that he's actually insecure because he starts to control her. He wants to know who she's going out with. He starts to talk badly about her friends and he actually never goes with her when she goes out with her friends because he wants to isolate her and have her just for himself mm. because he's afraid to lose her. He needs to have her around him. Mm. If, you, if she meets someone like that who's already in his 30s or 40s, right, she will discover that he's already got many girlfriends from the past, that he actually never breaks off with any of them, that he always continues his relationship with his ex-girlfriends because, uh, you know, they're just friends. To a man like that, he never has just friends. These are all girls that in his mind are on standby. If this relationship fails, then I can pick up one of the ones that I've been keeping online for a long time. Mm -hmm. Do you understand? So, so. But this isn't, again, this isn't necessarily driven consciously. It's driven out of this innate need. Sure, her Sorry, need. it's not innate need, but this fear-based need. In spite of the fact that she believes she's unlovable, undesirable to men, there's this great neediness in her to be loved and to be wanted mm -hmm. and to feel um, that she has a man in her life. With him, it's the same. Even though he believes strongly that he needs to prove, show and demonstrate because in essence he fears that he's not lovable, not acceptable, not desirable to women. He has to prove to himself through all the th things that he's learned, all the techniques or strategies he's learned that he's desirable to women, right? He still lives with that insecurity and once he's conquered one woman, then after a while he needs to do it again because he, he can never be, it's never enough. Mm. He needs his reaffirmation constantly or that he is attractive, that he is desirable. Mm. Because once the woman feels secure with him, the game is over. Do you understand? There's nothing that he has to do because he's just there. Mm. And that to him is often not enough. So he needs to conquer another woman to prove to her that he's special. And prove to himself that he's needed. That he is <coughs> desirable and mm. attractive. Mm -hmm. It's really the two have the similar issue, mm. if you recognize it. And they both pursue the same goal in different ways. She does it passively, he does it aggressively. So we're talking, I suppose we're talking about communication in relationships. And, well, how do these two people communicate? How do they communicate? Yeah. Well, eventually, she, she, feels fearful of leaving him because he feels that nobody else will love her, he starts to be, if not emotionally unfaithful, physically unfaithful to her, and she begins to doubt him, but he keeps on justifying it and telling her stories to explain why he's behaving the way he does, right? And so she is then fearful and insecure in the relationship and dissatisfied, but cannot leave because of her neediness keeps her there. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And he keeps exercising the control over her, but at the same time needs to either prove emotionally or emotionally and physically that he's that he can that that woman that he just saw that he thought was attractive to make her love him and want him because it's important to feel that he's wanted even though he actually doesn't want to be in a relationship with her. It's more important to him to know that she wants him. He needs to know that he's wanted, mm. that she desires him, because that gives him a certain sense of 
power and significance. Mm. And so when they are in conflict, the communication is really, really difficult unless she recognizes her issue and he recognizes his. Unfortunately, that kind of personality is so big in their ego that they hardly ever look at themselves. Very unlikely. In all my time, probably two people <laughs> with that sort of problem have come to me, but I've seen countless women with that kind of partner. Mm. So hence, I skew it that way. But I'm sure there's, in reverse, it's also the case, but I won't see those women because just like the men who don't see me, they don't come and see me because they are constantly proving to themselves that they're attractive to men and probably successful in doing so. And so for, so see it as um, that's the way I am. I need that. That's part of my way of being in the world. And I don't see it as an issue mm. because I'm constantly, you know, uh, these, these personalities bed a lot of partners quite often well reasonably so yeah it's an interesting point you made that there are there are sort of certain people with certain types of issues that are not conducive to coming and getting some help for their issues no because they they see themselves as being very functional and because they depend so much on feeling uh significance and worth through the activity that their issues create for them right uh they don't even want to give that up because it's the only way they can feel good about themselves. So their dysfunctionality feeds them. Mm. And uh, they they fear that without it, what would it be? It's, it, that's an interesting point because this is something that you've said to me before. It sort of resounds with me. And we, we can probably talk about this as a finishing note to this episode is to talk about the fact that when you're in fear, when when you're when you're dealing with these insecurities, it feels as though... With it, being without it would be losing a part of who you are or that it's not safe to be without your fear because it's keeping you in a space. It's it's an illusion. I think you said to me, fear creates the illusion that it's unsafe to be without that fear. Yeah. Well, it comes about from the fact that, um, and I spoke about this a few times now, it's about emotional survival actually being of greater import than um, physical survival. Mm -hmm. Um. So in our early childhood, uh, we survived by adopting strategies to overcome our fears. And the fears are created by the conditions our parents set for us uh, to be accepted and loved and wanted by them. So once we perceive that there are conditions to meet, then we have a fear of not meeting those conditions. And that's where fear comes from. Mm. So once we have that fear and then an associated strategy, because often the condition implies the strategy that you need to use, uh, once you have that strategy in place, you depend on that strategy to overcome the fear and to get the positive result that you perceive you will get by behaving and acting the way you do. So that makes that behavior then a strategic behavior because it has a particular purpose. So once you are hooked on to that behavior, uh, that strategic behavior as a means to get a certain goal met, which then absorbs you from your fear, right? Then you start to depend on it and you're loath to actually let go of the behavior because it's the only thing that you believe will get you what you want because you don't actually understand the nature of your own fear. 
So you know the behavior, but you don't know the fear that drives it. Mm. And that's why people don't want to change quite often because they fear that if they if they don't do that, then how would they get what they want? How would they have their need fulfilled? How would they feel good about themselves? How they will? How can they feel safe? How can they feel secure? How can they feel in control and empowered? Mm. If I'm not aggressive, I'm not demanding what I want. If I don't control another person, I will have no control. Yeah. And and so this this kind of mentality, this kind of belief system, which is reinforced by fear, people find really difficult to let go of, and sometimes very fearful. Uh, of going into work that actually will address that directly, which my work does. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. No, it's something that I experienced early on when I started seeing you first as a client is that I was concerned that the work we would do together would make me less effective in my job, for instance, because I felt that the strategies that I had put into place were particularly effective and were, I guess, applauded in that particular role that I was playing. I I realized afterwards that I'm a much more effective I'm much more effective at the, that same work without my fears in place. And without the strategies. Without the, I don't need the strategies and there's a lot less things going on in my own head about being strategic. It's not necessary and I can still actually do a much better job. I'm just free. I've got more time and the same, day. The, the, the exact same goes for relationships. Of course. Yeah. Your relationships will be a lot better if you let go of the fears and the associated strategies. Mm-hmm. Because you will then enter a space of spontaneity, honesty, and sincerity mm. that you actually thought you had but actually didn't. And that would be real communication between two people. Well, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> real communication with real feelings, real emotions, sincere, honest, and open. Mm. Yeah? That would be where most people want to their relationship to be. But the only way to get there is to deal with your fears. Mm. We might uh, wrap it up on that point because that's a very good conclusion, Rudy. Uh, unless you have something else you wanted to, to add. But. No, nothing I want to add to that other than uh, I want everyone to, to start doing exactly that. Start observing yourself. Start looking at yourself. Start um, reading my book perhaps would be a good start to, to know how to do that and what to look for. Uh, listening to the podcast obviously will help, but the book carries a lot more detail and it allows you to go back and over certain things in a way that podcasts don't allow you mm. to do. I'm also, and I've mentioned this before, I'm working on a relationship book to to be released soon, uh, which will also talk about communication again in a, in, in a similar fashion but in more greater detail. Mm. So I look forward to speaking to you all again soon. Mm. Well, thank you again, Rudy. Um, I'll probably just add that we, we're obviously keen on growing the following for this podcast so if you really enjoy it and especially if you can see some people in the examples that we're talking about please share it with your friends and we want to to try and grow the community of people that are are understanding this that are really starting to understand that they create their own reality and and they are they're a uh, creator of their issues and problems and they can that they can change absolutely absolutely everyone can change we all have the capacity for change. You are not locked in or you're not condemned to live with your fears. Well, thank you again, Rudy. We'll talk again. Welcome.